We're reading from Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. Ask, and will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his sons asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others who do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, for that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Hello. <laughs> How are we doing? Yeah? All right. <laughs> Y'all know that awkwardness is my love language. I don't know if you, I mean, that's sort of what we do here, isn't it? So thanks for that, and uh, thanks for coming. <laughs> so I appreciate you being here, uh, and I know it's that time of semester yet again. <laughs> It's been that kind of semester where it's always that kind of <laughs> time of semester. Uh, it's been busy. Someone said it's tis the season. It's been busy, and I thought, yeah, it's been winter for a long time. Uh, so, when is spring coming? Okay, so I am glad to see the weather's changing, but on a different note, we won't talk about the weather for the next 30 minutes. Let's talk about getting to know each other. Just so if you're not familiar, uh, my name is Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister of RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. It is a Christian campus ministry that exists really to serve you all, wherever you are and however you are. And what we mean by that is this isn't for one kind of person. This isn't for one particular scene on campus, one personal background. Um, This isn't um, for anyone who's supposed to be in one placeholder with their views and beliefs on Christianity or even Jesus. We're, we just want you to feel welcome no matter where you are, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, a believer or a spiritual skeptic, or again, none of the above, something in between, you fill in the right bubble. Um, we're really glad you're here. Thanks for coming. And really, I'm just really glad if this is like, if you're newish, um, we're really glad you're here. I don't know how you define that. We're just, that's awesome. So thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time and the risk with us. We really appreciate it. Um, so... This semester, we're, we're kind of moving through. I will say really quickly, we're not going to do the last two verses. So it's just going to be verses 7 through 12 uh, before I forget. But we are moving through the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what we're doing in large group right now. We're looking at Jesus' most famous speech uh, that he ever gave. And as I've said before, I think these words of Jesus are essential Christian reading. And that means that uh, they've been central to every generation, every cultural's take on Christianity what it means to be a Christian, what is Christianity, has been in some way, shape, or form defined by these verses. And so here's the deal, though, whether you call yourself Christian or not, I think we actually all tend to read these three chapters of Matthew the same way. We think of them as good advice I should really get around to. And, and here's my contention. Maybe, just maybe, we struggle to get around to Jesus' quote-unquote to-do list uh, because maybe we just never get there because it's like just impossible. <laughs> uh, it's impossible on your own strength. It's impossible with your own resources. And that might be why it's really hard to get to. Uh, ready? Here are a few of Jesus' kind suggestions. Love your enemy. 
be perfect, don't be anxious, don't judge. Just a few. Uh, and so let's fast forward to 3 p.m. on Wednesday. And my guess is like you, like me, have not gotten past the first suggestion. So we still struggle to love our enemies. So that might be part of why we struggle with this, this passage. But I would love to encourage us to take a deep breath, breathe, and hear these words as Jesus meant them to be read, to heard to his realize now read in Matthew. Contrary to popular opinion, the Sermon on the Mount, like the rest of the Bible, is not primarily a moral to-do list. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth, Bible. Um, it's an invitation, okay? This is an invitation, just like the rest of Scripture. Jesus is asking us to see the world, to see our lives in this world differently, to see them with spiritual imagination. And that's why we've been talking about this. The sermon series is called Beyond Good Advice, seeing our lives with spiritual imagination. I did the subtitle that time. Okay. So for many of us this week, it's going to take a, just a lot of spiritual imagination to go where we're going to go because these words about God and about prayer are either really familiar or really strange. And whether you're in either of those places, they still feel really hard and doubt-filled. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to tackle that. We're going to push into these words together. And we're going to push into this passage. But before we do, would you pray with me? Father, thanks so much for this group of students. Thanks for this time together. Uh, it is a privilege. Um, it is just an incredible time that we get to sit and think about your words. Uh, it's sort of forced reflection. It's a way that we get to, to see you, Jesus, to be with you no matter where we are with you. And Lord, I know that a lot of people in this room are in very different places. And I pray, Father, that you would meet them where they are, that you'd use this time together you'd use my words, that you'd use your word most of all, um, and that you would help us to see you fresh, that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, and that you'd be more beautiful and believable to us. That's our prayer, no matter where we are, that you would shift our posture, that you would shift our a way that we take in the world, um, and that we would see you more. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to take you back to a pivotal moment in my life. That's what we do, right? I just tell a story, usually about me. And this semester in particular, it's been a lot about this time I taught and coached. Another one. Okay, I don't know why. It's just like, what's going on? I, you know, put me on a couch. I'm just thinking about the last couple of years. I don't know. So anyway, let me take you back to a pivotal moment in my life. Again, three, after three years of teaching and coaching at a small prep school just outside of Washington, D.C., I made some personal news public. I was leaving the prep school world of coaching and teaching, and I was going to go to seminary. Seminary is where I would study to become doing what I'm doing, I'm to become a pastor. And this was actually pretty shocking news at the place I was at. It was not a parochial school, it was uh, private, but it was all boys in coat and tie and ivy covered and lots of field stone. And they just really didn't know what to make of it. And overall, the students really didn't, um, they took it a lot better than the faculty did. Uh, that students asked me if I was to become a monk. I thought that was a good question. <laughs> and I said, no. And they started calling it, the clever ones at least, started calling what I was about to do, monkastery. True story. So they would go, how's monkastery? How's it going? And, uh, and how's, are you preparing yourself? 
And then a few of the fellow teachers and coaches that I worked with were friends, and so they knew kind of they saw it coming, the decision, I had talked to them about it. But a lot of them just were absolutely shocked and had no real words to say. Uh, congratulations, question mark, that sort of thing, okay? So in the midst of like a lot of awkward and, and prematurely short conversations that we had together uh, with my colleagues, uh, I had one long and memorable conversation with a man named Tom. Tom was something of a living and breathing legend at the school where I taught. He had taught English at the same school, this same school, for over 50 years. Okay? He was the official school historian, I guess rightly so. And he was fluent in William Shakespeare. <laughs> fluent. Tom quoted and cited Shakespeare as if the bard were a second language, or I would argue his native tongue. He was that conversant in Shakespeare. Tom loved to sit cross-legged in the window seat of the faculty lounge and hold forth about whatever he was reading, you would be reading soon, or he would make a witty insult or uh, a joke using 17th century English. Uh, that was Tom. So one afternoon, uh, he suddenly paused his verbal review of the New York Review of Books. Literally, he would do that. And he looked at me as I was leaning half, kind of leaning over my faculty mailbox. And he said, I heard the news. I said, oh, okay, because I'd been breaking slowly. Uh, he said, I heard you're going into the ministry. And I think he used something like, you're going to become a man of the cloth and study holy writ. Uh, something like that, but I'm not sure. That might just be an embellishment. Um, and so after a sincere congratulations, uh, Tom proceeded to tell me about his Christian experience. It was one of those moments in the late afternoon that you never see coming. And it went, his Christian experience went something like this. Tom grew up as a boy in North Carolina, and he had been raised a Christian. But his father was a hard man. And he was hard in a lot of respects, but especially because he was an alcoholic. And his drunkenness caused a lot of misery for Tom and his family. Every day for every year he can every day for the, the years of his life that he could remember, little Tom would get down on his knees, he'd clasp his hands together, and he'd pray to God for his dad to stop drinking. Every day. Without fail. But every day his dad didn't stop drinking. In fact, he never stopped drinking until he died. So around the age of 16 or so, Tom ceased to pray. He stopped believing in God, a God who hears and cares. And instead, Tom resigned himself to believe only in fate, a fate that is both tragic and inevitable, a fate that we can't control, we can only embrace. So in lesser or greater detail, many of us share Tom's problems with prayer and with God. Some of you, like Tom, have had a bad father, and that's made life hard, or at least harder than it should be. And I'm deeply sorry if that's the case for you, by the way. That's just a really hard road. But many of us have had fairly good fathers, but we still find it hard to pray and to think fresh about God as Father. Perhaps it's because of stories like Tom's that we've heard. I mean, that's probably not original to me. Um, or maybe it's parts of our lives that we think about with prayer and God. I like the way that a different Tom, Tom Wright, puts it. He says, for a lot of us, it's not just difficult to pray to God for the right things. For a lot of us, it's difficult to pray to God for anything. Or at the very least, what we really actually want. That's hard to pray and give over to God. Okay? But our passage tonight, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, addresses these doubts and difficulties directly. Jesus is telling us how to pray, 
how we get to pray how we want because of who we are praying to, our Heavenly Father. We can pray how we want because of who we pray to, our Father in Heaven. And this Father's character changes the why we pray and the how of how we live. So again, we get to pray how we want because of who we're praying to, God, our Father in Heaven. And this Father's character changes why we pray and how we live. And really, that's just a paraphrase of Jesus' words in these five or so verses. And it provides us the logical flow and actually the content of where I think this passage is going to move us tonight. My guess. And first, so we'll see this in the outline that I gave on the handout. First, in verses 7 through 8, we're going to see how Jesus says how to pray. How do you pray? Verses 9 through 11, who do we pray to? For my English majors, for, to whom do we pray? <laughs> or who do we pray to? Okay. And finally, third, we're going to look at verse 12. Jesus says what to do with our lives. What do we do with our lives? As usual, that's on your, on your handout. But also, as usual, we're going, to start, we're going to begin at the beginning. Again, I think you're going to catch the logical flow here, hopefully, the, the slipstream of logic. And we're going to start at verses 7 and 8 and how to pray. So I promise you we will hold these promises that Jesus just gave up to real life. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but I want you to take them first at face value. Just read them afresh. Verses 7 through 8, Jesus answers our first blush, gut-level questions about prayer. How do we pray? And what do we say when we pray? Imagine you were going to start all over. Those are the questions that you would ask. How do we pray? And what do we say when we pray? And Jesus gives us three simple commands. Seek, ask, and knock. Or ask, seek, and knock. And then he gives us three over-the-top promises. You'll receive that. You'll find it. That door will be open. And so what's Jesus' answer to what to say in pray? prayer? What is he, what's his answer to what do you say in, when you pray? He basically says, say anything. Anything. Just say something. That's his answer. You see, the reason that Jesus is being so simple about his commands and so comp- so like over the top with his promises is to reassure us that yes, God hears our prayers and yes, God hears all of our prayers. God hears our prayers at all and he hears all of our prayers. This is because Jesus is fully human. Right here, right now, up at the right hand of the Father. He's still fully human. And he spent 33 years on this planet in our circumstances. So Jesus understands what prayer can sometimes feel like. It can sometimes feel pointless. It can sometimes feel certifiably crazy. Okay, think about it this way. Prayer prayer can feel silly. There we are kneeling down and up talking to the fluorescent lights in the ceiling. Right? Or it can feel like a madhouse mad, right? like collecting grocery bags, tying them into a suit of armor, and marching down the street, making loud speeches to an invisible friend. It can feel like that. Okay. Therefore, I think Jesus in verses seven, 6 through 7, Jesus is making sure to underline the fact, that outside of us kind of fact, that God hears and God cares about our prayers. He's underlining that point. And again, because Jesus intimately gets what it feels like to be a human being, what he knows what it feels like to get caught up into drama. He knows what it feels like to be tangled up inside. 
So Jesus is counseling us to be direct in our prayers. He's saying, tell God anything that is on your mind and ask for whatever you want. Tell God that anything that's on your mind and ask for whatever you want. Ask for what you need, even, even what you think you might need. As much as you want, perhaps even praying for those things ceaselessly, asking over and over and over again. Ask for physical shelter and food and health and clothes, whether individually or wrapped up in that bigger problem of grades. I got to do well in that class because I got to keep on my trajectory so I can get that major, so I can get that grad school, so I can get that job. Or if just the job this summer or the rest of your life, if you're a senior, or any job, not just that job at this point for the summer or for the rest of my life. Okay, isn't that where in April we start to get like that? Okay. Or you get to ask for spiritual benefits, right? You get to ask for forgiveness for that conversation you had right before you entered this room. You get to ask for more love for a friend or more love for God. You get to ask just for a general peace, like everywhere that's needed, amen. That's what you get to ask for. And again, perhaps briefly, but definitely freely and frequently, you get to seek God, you get to seek God's wisdom. You get to seek it for the present day purpose. Why am I put on this planet? For our future tense fears about what's really going to happen to us. And for God's presence, just frankly, to feel a little bit more real. You get to finally knock. You get to knock in that tightening space that feels claustrophobic, where all the doors of your life feel like they're getting blocked. Blocked relationships, blocked goals, blocked opportunities. You get to bring those to God, and you get to ask him to open them, or just at the very least, help me to find a different way. But again, don't miss Jesus' broader point in the thick of some specific ways to pray. God wants us to pray, and we get to pray about anything, anything. In the words of biblical scholar Dale Bruner, if you don't believe me, listen to Dale. Dale says this, Jesus intends to buck up our wavering, unbelieving, reluctant to pray spirits and to encourage us just to start asking. Jesus is trying to bring us by any means possible to the Father, hands out, mouths open. God is not so divine that he shouldn't be bothered, nor are we so sinful that we shouldn't try to pray. Jesus wants us to ask. Okay, that that means this. You cannot bother God. You are not pulling on his robe. He's not like, I just got a couple more emails to go. (laughs) Um, He doesn't need a smartphone, okay? God is all-powerful and he is all-present your one more request is not going to tip the apple cart. Everything's going to fall apart. Oh, I just couldn't handle your question, right? I'm just still all powerful here and you're just struggling, right? We, but we think we're nagging God and bothering him with this, that one more request, maybe that more, one more request one more time. And you also don't have to disqualify yourself before you even pray. Asking God in Jesus's name is all qualifying. But, the real-life, real-world objections come so hot and heavy on the heels of verses 7 through 8, don't they? Really, Jesus? Come on. We can ask and even should ask for everything or anything. What if I pray for humility? Oh, no. And God causes me to fail a class. Thanks. Or get publicly shut down on the Davidson Facebook group. Ah! Oh, okay? Or... 
Why don't I just pray to be filthy rich then and just be done with it, Jesus? Good suggestion. Or worse, what, what if I do pray for one million bucks and like the Geico commercial, Jesus, uh, God twists my prayer for one million bucks into giving me one million male deer bucks. Okay, what if he's like that? But perhaps more seriously, what about my friend Tom, the Shakespeare scholar? What about his prayers? He asked for something good. His dad to get healthy, to, to not get drunk all the time. But he didn't receive it. His dad died without ever getting sober. Surely young Tom sought God about his dad. Surely he knocked on that door. And yet it seems like to me, to him, he never found an answer. That door was never opened. So Jesus, where are verse 7 and 8's conditions? Where are the exceptions to this rule? Where are the qualifications? Everyone gets this? Everyone? Really? What about the Syrian people that just got gassed? What about my family? What about Tom? Thankfully, the passage doesn't end here. Jesus responds to these really good, really hard questions. And that the meat of his response is our second point on your outline. According to verses 9 through 11... All of this depends on who you pray to. It all depends on who you pray to. The reason we can ask for anything, the reason that some prayers are obviously answers and some prayers are, obvi- are not so obviously answered, at least not obviously, at least right not, not right now, not that I can see, the reason that Jesus can say verses 7 through 8 is because God is a good father who, not, who only gives good gifts. God is a good father who only gives good gifts. All right. Again, I'm going to ask us to hold back the flood of questions. Okay, just right now, we're going to get to it, I promise. But I want us to first pay attention to what Jesus is saying and not saying about who God is. What is Jesus saying and not saying about who God is? Simply put, verse 11 tells us God is this. God is your Father who is in heaven and who gives good things to those who ask him. Verses 9 through 10 illustrate what this means using real-world, real-life examples. Okay. For instance, when the child asks for something good, the father won't give his son or daughter something bad. I think basically what, God, what Jesus is saying here is that these verses are telling us that God is at the very least like a decent human father. At the very least, he's like a decent human father. Most human fathers are not going to go out and intentionally harm their children. Most are not. Some are, and I'm really, again, sorry, but that, that's the way it is. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that, hopefully, towards the end. But, you know, most people don't set out to harm their children. Okay, so again, so if a child asks for something good, the father won't give his son or daughter something bad. Let me give you a real-life example. Okay, if Carol, William, and Millie, my children... Ask me for the 21st century version of bread at dinner. Let's say mac and cheese. Okay. I won't try and trick them. That's not the moment that I go, oh, I don't rub my hands together, go to the backyard, dig up some weeds, add some Parmesan cheese, and ta-da, here's your mac and cheese, children. Eat it or else. Right? Can you imagine? 
if Carol and William ask me for dinosaur-shaped chicken nuggets, the 21st century parents' version of fish, I won't try and scare them. I don't rub my hands together, grab a live wriggling fish from our very dirty aquarium, and plop it gasping, gasping for a life, gills flaring onto their jungle plate, and say to them, here's your dino nugget, children. Go ahead, have at it, eat it or else. Okay? But Jesus is implying something even further. Even when a child asks for something bad, a typical father won't give that child the something bad he or she asks for. All right? This is the condition. This is the qualification that Jesus is attaching to verses 7 through 8, by the way. You see, if Carol and William or Millie ask me for weeds instead of mac and cheese, or for a flopping zebrafish instead of a dino nugget, I won't give that to them for dinner. Duh, right? <laughs> or perhaps more realistically, if Carol, William, or Millie ask me to give me watermelon-flavored Sour Patch Kids swimming in a chocolate ice cream sundae for dinner, and let's just make this obvious, every night, I won't give them that meal either, right? And verse 11 tells us that earthly fathers like me are evil in comparison to the heavenly father. So Jesus' argument goes, how much more good will God give you when we ask him for it? God's answers to prayer isn't just decent. He doesn't give us stuff that just sort of passes, he's not going to try to harm me this time test. Okay? God, what God gives us and what God withholds from us is perfectly good. God only gives good gifts, what we absolutely need and what we really want. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, comes from God, because he, at his heart, at the character level, God is infinitely good and eternally perfect. This statement about the nature of God and other gifts is not a call for blind, leaping faith, right? How do I know that? Because God has proven how just how good He is, how good the gifts He are, God, how good the gifts are that He gives. Okay, He does this historically. He makes His proof historically in the real life, real world. Two thousand years ago, God the Father gave up what was the most precious thing to Him, His very best. His only divine son, Jesus Christ, he gave him up on a wood splintery cross. And that sacrifice that he gave for us, in order to allow us to believe from the inside out, is for us to believe from the inside out who he is. We get to, by embracing Jesus, to actually to believe that he is our father in heaven who gives good things. The very nature of his good gift giving is proven by Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Wrestle with the history of that. Trust me, it's worth doing. Okay, but I sometimes think we're, we're really convinced deep down inside that God is holding out on us. I am. This is like just a confession sermon, by the way. I don't know if you've felt that yet. Um, maybe just also some parenting tips, but mostly confession. Uh, because we don't see him as a father. This is why we struggle. We think he's holding out on us because we don't see him as a father. Instead, we see him what he's not. We see him as a genie in a lamp. Okay, we see God as some sort of genie in a lamp. 
Of course, naturally, want all we want everything that we want instantly and all of the time. But reason with me here, just for a little bit. If God, if God's desires are for us, are as wise as a father's to a child, right? If they're that wise, He won't spoil us. Okay. If God's thoughts and His ways are greater than ours, far greater than the heavens are from the earth. God's ways with prayer might not make sense to us. That would make sense that they don't make sense if God is that metaphysically big. Okay? And this should be comforting news because we don't have the burden of getting whatever we want all the time. This is hard to hear. I get it. But we, that is a burden. Our prayers are free from receiving unseen and unintended consequences. Whether that's the kind of side effect that horror movies predict, you watch these things, you know, like they ask for the family pet to come back and they get pet cemetery, like the flesh eating zombie cat named Church. I mean, Stephen King, 1980s. Uh, I'm sure it'll be on Netflix. Don't worry about it. Okay. They do the 1980s recycle. We've got that coming up. But does that make sense? We have that horror idea that we ask for something and somehow it gets twisted and it becomes the worst possible scenario. Or perhaps more realistically, just ask yourself this question. What if you actually got your middle school prayer? If you grew up Christian, what if you got your middle school prayer? Just for a second. What if you were 10 years from then, now, married to your tween puberty-soaked crush? Just saying. Thank God he spared some of you from a life with a brooding boy singer. Thank God. Some of you might have asked for that, and he didn't give it to you. All right, So that's part of his goodness. So again, think about what it'll be like in 10 years to look back at your prayers now. And then think about how big God is and how eternal he is. But when I think of the frustration and the relief and the mystery of what it feels like to be God's child, I think it's sometimes helpful to ground this in a story. So I've gave you a couple arguments, but I'd love to kind of ground this in a story. It's a story from my professor from seminary. He told it to me one time. One sunny day, my professor, Dr. Cofield, Jim, was riding outside on a tandem bicycle with his autistic son. This image already makes me laugh because Jim is a huge man. <laughs> he is fairly hairy, he's heavy set, he's very tall, and he is on a banana yellow two-seater tandem bike with his, tin, his tall, thin teenage son named Skylar who's on the autistic spectrum. And I like to think that they each had matching baskets and bike horns, but again, I think I'm making that up. So don't, <laughs> let's leave that to the imagination category. Anyway, Jim and his son are out riding on a perfectly sunny day and they're turning a corner and all of a sudden they hit some loose gravel. It's a true story. And the bike, already unbalanced by their size and weight difference, starts to skid out of control and it kind of teeter-totters, goes back and forth, back and forth. And they're kind of following pretty hard into the turn. They're following hard to the left. And Jim realizes what's starting to happen. He kind of leans hard to the right. But when he looks back at his son Skylar, he is leaning into the fall. He's leaning to the left as hard as he can with all of his adolescent weight. Okay, Jim panics. He almost lays himself out, like has a, like a foot on a pedal. And he's leaning the other direction to the right just to right the bike up, to get it upright once again. And meanwhile, the bike is moving. It's like skidding on the gravel. And his son is leaning into the turn because he doesn't know any better, right? And 
and Jim is skidding and dying uh, and thinking he's going to die. And all of a sudden, it's seesawing back and forth. All right, maybe he's not dying. Okay, but finally, Jim is somehow able to right the bike, and it comes to a stop. And he takes a moment, and he composes himself, and he just he forces a smile and looks back at Skylar. And he's about to say something deeply profound, like, whoa, buddy. And his autistic young son just starts yelling at him at the top of his lungs. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Dad, why did you do that? And Jim is like so stunned he can't even speak. After, again, tries to compose himself and he actually tries to say all that he's prevented from happening. The whole crash. He goes, well, there was loose gravel and then you, Skylar, were leaning into the fall and almost making his crash all the harder. But then he looks at his son and he realizes that he's on the verge of crying. And he realizes his son doesn't and won't ever get what happened. And Jim realizes that all he can do is just hug him and whisper over him, I'm so sorry, son. I'm so sorry that happened to us. That's how my relationship with God all too often works. There is my father ordering the chaos, binding up what's broken, making all things new. And there I am yelling often inside my head because I'm a professional Christian. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Or Mike, in the case of prayer most often, why didn't you do that? I prayed for that. Why didn't you do that? And God knows. He knows there was loose gravel. And he knows that what I wanted most in my life was leaning into the fall. But how can he begin to explain it all to me? except to remind me that he's my dad. So to return to the text, Jesus wants us to know who God is, verses 9 through 11. And so we know how to be with God, what to say to him in verses 7 and 8, and what to do with him in verse 12. In other words, we're going to pivot from prayer to action from verses 7 through 11 to 12, and our third and final point, which is what to do or what to do with their lives. That's what we're going to look at a little bit. And verse 12, by the way, is this often quoted piece of the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps second to judge not. People who call themselves Christians, people who don't call themselves Christians, are familiar with this saying, no matter who you are. If you grew up on this planet, east, west, ancient, future, modern, whatever, this is the golden rule. Most people know it. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, verse 12, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Verse 12 summarizes the entire teaching that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. It's his concluding verse to the final body of his, he's winding down to the conclusion of his sermon. It also summarizes the entire Old Testament. The shorthand for the Old Testament that they use in the New Testament is the law and the prophets over and over and over again. He's summarizing the entire ethical teaching of the Old Testament here. He's saying, act like your father who's in heaven and give good, gives good gifts. That's the summary. Act like your father who's in heaven and gives good gifts. But how do we know what other people want and need? What other good gifts do we give? Well, put yourself in their shoes and ask yourself, what would I really want there? What would I really want there? Perhaps an overly clever way of putting this, it's guilty, is verse 12 is not you do you. But instead, I'll do you. 
I'll do you. That is, I'll try and anticipate your needs. I will fix my attention on the needs and cares and joys and loves and hopes and dreams of you. This is what Jesus calls love. That's love. And of course, the desire to love people where they are and how they are doesn't always end there. It's not always leaving them there. It's not always giving them exactly what they want in that place and time. Any of us who've dealt with people deeply know that. And this trial by love, because it's so complicated, draws us back to verses 7 through 11, particularly 7 and 8, and what exactly we're going to pray for in these moments. Because that kind of love is impossible to do, let alone sustain, without the gifting of God the Father, who anticipates our needs. That kind of love is impossible without the Son, Jesus, who in his life and by his death and resurrection has fixed his attention on our cares. He has fixed his attention on our loves and joys and hopes and dreams. In other words, we need God's love to empower our love to love likewise. We cannot love likewise without God's power to love. And so here's the thing. If I were to go back in time, back to that partly sunny faculty lounge, right? How would I love Tom as I would want to be loved? What would I say to him? And how would I answer his honest, heartfelt questions about God and about childhood prayers? How do I tell, how do I look him in the eye as a pastor and talk to him about how messed up and heart-wrenching harm is done in this world and why it exists this way? I've thought a lot about that. A lot about that. Three years of seminary, nine years of ministry about that. And I had not had a good answer until literally last week. Someone sent me an answer. Would you want to hear it? It's from a former student named Emily. And she gave me permission to share this. Emily was sexually assaulted at Davidson. And in the words, that this is her words, the state refused to try my case and the school's judicial process gave my assailant a slap in the wrist. She prayed to God, what halfway decent father lets this happen to his child? Don't you care? Do something. But Emily only heard God's silence and only felt his absence. No, she concluded, he doesn't care and nobody cares. Now we felt this way for several months until fittingly God personally met her in a Shakespeare class that discussed the very play that Tom from the prep school recommended that I see. Here's how Emily puts it. It's a lengthy read, but I really can't put it any better or shorter. So bear with me. This is Emily's words. We read a play called Measure for Measure about a deputy named Angelo who tries to sexually coerce a nun named Isabella by threatening to execute her brother if she doesn't comply. She threatens to speak out, and he asks her a painfully modern question. Who will believe thee? The timing was eerie, as though Shakespeare predicted my very worst fear. She looks for a way out, but malignant Angelo keeps telling her no remedy, no remedy. But while Isabella is stuck in a hopeless bind, a benevolent duke appears in disguise and saves her. To the love I have in doing good, he tells her, a remedy presents itself. 
unbeknownst to Isabella, the undercover Duke works all things for her good. And through her story, this is Emily's words, I began to see a far greater figure and healer working in my life. At the end of the play, unaware of the Duke's successful plan, Isabella's furious. She demands justice, 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 and an angry exclamation that sounded a lot like my constant internal monologue. The Duke, though still under disguise, calls Isabella mad. How dare he, I thought. She's been mistreated. She's been wronged. She has a right to be angry. She has a right to demand justice. And as I fumed internally, my thoughts about Isabella blended with my own thoughts about myself. I've been mistreated. I've been wronged. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to demand justice. But my professor said, she is, really is mad. Because what ang- that's what anger does to people. It makes them mad. My professor's voice betrayed no condemnation or blame, but a frank sympathy for a woman driven mad, not only by her circumstances, but also by her own heart. After all, the word mad means both angry and crazy. Isabel's breakdown shined into my life like a flame of conviction well-timed, painfully exposing the reality of my heart, but in so doing, setting me free. And she ends this way. I realize that Isabella sees the crime as unforgivable because she sees the damage done to her as irredeemable. But in Shakespeare's play, as in the kingdom of God, irredeemable damage does not exist. In our world, it is true because Jesus Christ, the perfect man and savior, lived a perfect life and then died on a cross to pay the perfect price for all of the evil all the sin, all the heartache. The remedy in my world is a word, the very same word that became flesh and dwelt among us. The light which the darkness had not overcome became visible. And once I truly recognized God's hand, I began to see it everywhere, sovereign over Shakespeare and sovereign over my heart. That's what I would have said. I can't say anything else. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Emily and for her story and the ways that she's wrestling through what this feels like to live in this world. We cry justice and it feels like no one hears. We pray and it feels like you're busy. But I pray that you'd help pierce our darkness with your light. Even now in this room, as we think about school or we think about our lives, or we think about our friend's life or Syria or whatever, I just pray that you would pierce that darkness. That your love, that, that you remind us that nothing is irredeemable. That nothing is broken that can't be fixed. And I pray that you'd hope us to hope like children to his father. Like children to his father children to her father. In Jesus' name, amen.